From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. This year brings an unprecedented surge of anti-trans legislation, banning everything from sports participation to healthcare access. So far, we're tracking roughly 280 state bills that have been filed ahead of or during this legislative session. At the same time, the Supreme Court is on the precipice of delivering a final decision that will likely overturn Roe v. Wade, blocking people who can get pregnant from abortion care. Now, these attacks are actually all part of the same movement, a movement against bodily autonomy and our ability to live freely, no matter our model or make, a movement to re-entrench gender hierarchy and binary thinking. To that end, we're bringing you a conversation with Alok Vade Menon, a non-binary writer, performer, public speaker, activist, and artist, exploring the themes of trauma, belonging, and the human condition. They are the author of Femme in Public, Beyond the Gender Binary, and Your Wound, My Garden. Alok has done a lot of work to interrogate their personal history, our collective history, and to probe beneath the surface of what we've come to accept as the norm. They challenge us all to use our imagination to rewire what we believe is possible for ourselves and society around us. This is a really special conversation, and our team, quite honestly, all felt gobsmacked by Alok's perspective. We're going to let this conversation run long because we want you all to experience it and take it in as we did. Alok, your work has helped me better understand myself and those around me, and I'm so excited to have you here with us. Welcome to At Liberty. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. So to get started, I want to orient our listeners to you and to your work. And if you don't mind, Alok, I would like to do this by talking about your relationship with your family. First off, I want to take a moment to express our condolences from the ACLU for the loss of your aunt recently, Irvashi Vade. Irvashi was actually a staff attorney with the ACLU's National Prison Project, where she worked to expand the ACLU's prison work to fight for those with HIV and AIDS. She also led the National LGBTQ Task Force and was crucial in fighting for the advancement of the community. In her New York Times obit, they wrote, long before the word intersectionality entered common parlance, she was practicing it, insisting that the freedom for gay men and lesbians required fighting for gender, racial, and economic equality as well. What a legacy she leaves. I was wondering if we could start first with talking a little bit about what your aunt taught you and how her work informs yours today. Mm. You know, I've been saying that I'm one of the many institutions that she helped create. I am only alive because of her legacy. You know, I grew up in a small town in Texas where I was being told that the world would be better without me. But Orvishi, from my youngest memories, contradicted that with so much panache and so much joy that homophobia just seemed ridiculous. I knew that the people around me were wrong because she was so right. And so I had this kind of kernel of possibility such that when I was younger, I made a kind of promise to myself that one day I'd grow up and I'd survive so that I could move to New York and I could live a life like her. And it's very distressing to me that so much of the conservative fear-mongering right now positions LGBTQ people as a threat or as a danger to young people when I'm here to say that having access to an open lesbian saved my life. And actually, she was the one who fought for me and protected me and defended me when no one else would. I think that is an incredibly important piece to start with. And I think what a what a seed of something that, that really grew in you. And to your point, the idea that we could be weaponizing 
this identity as, as saying this is a danger to our children when in, in fact the exact opposite is true. You've also talked about how other family members have shaped you. In a recent interview, you said, my mother and my grandmother created the conditions for me to have the audacity to own my body. And I see my life and my gender as a continuation of a tapestry of women who had the bravery to say, no, thank you. I was wondering if you could talk more about this, about how watching other other people in your life, watching women in your life live out their lives informed this identity building of your own. I'm really lucky um, because I had so many powerful examples of feminism from a very early age. My grandmother started painting uh, towards the end of her life because she felt like she'd spent her hand, her entire life using her hands to cook and to clean for other people. And painting was the first time that she was doing something for herself. And I had just have so many memories of being alongside her as she would paint for five, six, seven hours at a time, these deeply abstract paintings. And I'd ask her, what is this? And she'd say, this is my rage. And she was so honest. She was using coffee grinds from the kitchen. She was using spoons and all these other things that she had spent her entire life cooking for other people. And she would say to me, these paintings are my children and they're the, they're the, the most proud I've ever been of anything in my life because they're just me. This is who I really am. And so she taught me that artistry is not some luxury. I think it gets framed as something that's gratuitous or excessive. But she taught me that artistry and creative self-expression are actually foundational to being alive, that we all need outlets to get out our pain and our anguish and our hurt. And she also taught me that it was never too late to completely try something new. She had never painted before. She was a poet and a writer before and a teacher, but painting was just where she felt called to be. And so a lot of times people look at me in my career and they say, well, what are you? Are you a writer? Are you a performer? Are you a comedian? Are you an actor? Are you?" And that's never made sense to me because from a young age, I had women who did everything and who weren't just gender non-conforming, they were genre non-conforming. And they realized that all these categories were created to contain us and to stifle our creativity. Then I think my grandfather was also a huge, huge role in my life. He was kind of a quintessential old school Indian intellectual who used to have big gestures and corduroy blazers and always reeked of whiskey or like ink or some <laughs> combination of the two. And from a young age, he surrounded me with political thinkers and artists from the diaspora and in India whenever we'd visit. And I learned that actually the purpose of education is to become critical of the very institutions that are educating you. I learned that actually education is not about reinforcing the status quo, it's about questioning it. And so as a young person, my grandfather would install in me the reason that our family was able to immigrate is because of the civil rights movement, is because of the Immigration Act, which was the byproduct of racial justice organizing led by Black people. So actually what you're learning in school is inadequate. You have to actually learn your own trajectory, your own history, and you have to become critical. And so that idea of critical thinking, I think, has stayed with me my entire career and my entire life, where I understand that things are not what they seem, that the surface is not actually the same thing as its soul, that actually it's possible and actually necessary to dig deeper. And that's what I'm trying to do with my work always is to probe beyond the surface. What I'm hearing from you is that between both your grandmother who inspired your artistry and then your grandfather who prompted your critical thinking, there's this theme of, I guess, imagination. Both critical thinking and artistry require you to use your imagination. When others don't know, Alok, what you do, in quotes, or how to perceive you, that's because of their lack of imagination. And your mission to me seems to be to conjure up our collective imagination, to imagine better for our country or just for our own human experience, something that we clearly in this country do not do enough of. Yes, 
I would say as a young person, my family cultivated my capacity to imagine. And that is something that often gets stifled when people grow up. As a kid, you're allowed to imagine and then maturity is supposed to be where you restrict that and you have to enter the world of realism and reality and, and truth. But truth like reality is an ongoing construction project and we should question who carries those tools. And my family always cultivated wonder and critique. I almost to the detriment, like I don't want to glorify them. There'd be times I'd be like, I just want to go to the mall and hang out with my friends. And they'd be like, have you read the New York Times? Like, what are your thoughts on contemporary issues? And I'd be like, okay, I just want to chill. Um, but I think now as an adult, I'm really able to see the grief that people have that they were punished for imagining. And that's so much of what the retaliation against trans and non-binary life is is the unprocessed grief that so many non-trans people have for the ways in which their imagination was circumscribed. Because the truth is none of us were born stereotypical Barbie or Ken. We were made into such. That's a story of stifling dissent because each person actually had a desire, an interest, a passion, a proclivity, a way of being that didn't fit into what women or men were supposed to do. And yet, the very people who said that they loved us told us to abbreviate that imagination, keep quiet, and just perpetuate the lie. And it is, I think, easier to demonize trans people than it is to reckon with that heartbreak, the intimate betrayal of the people who said that they loved us and that they were there to protect us, actually coercing us into silence, requiring self-immolation in order to be loved. And so as the child of imagination, my only response to that is mercy and compassion because I'm sorry that your imagination has been stifled. I'm sorry that you've been taught that artistry is a luxury. I'm sorry that you thought that creative self-expression is something that you don't deserve. You deserve it too. So when they call us snowflakes, I think it's a real indication of their heartbreak why would we ever think that being our own unique form is something embarrassing or wrong? Isn't that what we should be aspiring towards, actually recognizing one another's mutual complexity? Yeah, the idea that being a snowflake, being something individual is an insult. When in reality, when we actually catch snowflakes on our hands as kids, we're taught that it's beautiful. And unfortunately, it seems to, to me that it's not even necessarily something we can pin on one person or our family or our parents or even our grandparents because it is the the air we breathe, it is the water we drink, it is systemic, and it has been institutionalized in so many ways. But I think it's important to remember that every institution has its cracks and every ideology has its ellipses. There is always a break in it. And in one telling, someone like Orvashi, my aunt, should not have existed at the time in history that she did. But she was protesting from the age of five when she told her mother not to hit her because she was a human being, not a plant. And when we actually open ourselves up to the fact that alongside all of these total, seemingly totalizing systems, there's always been a culture of dissent. And what I would actually argue is that culture of dissent is the natural order of the universe. That actually the culture of dissent is another way of saying being alive. That actually living an honest life has become a form of dissent because freedom actually threatens the very architecture of this reality, which is based off of coercion, not creativity. So what I prefer to say is... I know that you've been taught that reality is having to restrict yourself and make yourself small to make other people feel comfortable. But that's not reality. That's politics. What reality is, is diversity is foundational for our ecology. That in order for us, not just for me, but in order for us as a species to survive, we have to have diversity. And diversity is not just along lines of race, its class, its gender, its ability, its mind, its presentation. 
And in everything we're fighting for, what we're actually trying to tell people is to return to what was. I think people keep on saying this new world that you want, that's gender free, it's, it's destroying our traditions and cultures. But actually, I'm trying to return to what was not just in terms of colonization, which we can talk about, but actually in terms to the descent of your imagination when you were a kid and you could play pretend and things weren't as fixed and absolute, a return to that sense of wonder and possibility and mutual admiration for the ways in which we continually outwitted and outsmarted and outgrew any narrative we had of one another. Yeah, I think we're living in a time where it's it's so clear that our binary thinking is hurting us. We've lost even the simplest form of nuance, and it's created such a stark division and, and hatred among us. I want to bring this conversation to the present moment, especially since that we've dug a bit into your inspirations, your history, and how they've shaped this, this thesis that you're sharing with us. I want to apply it now to what's happening right now. If we think about the recent surge of anti-trans legislation that's operating in tandem with anti-abortion legislation, it's clear that something bigger is going on. Can you break this down for us? What's happening here? Yeah, so I want to break this down for people because in popular culture, abortion rights and trans rights get discussed as separate phenomenon. But actually, trans justice is reproductive justice, and reproductive justice is trans justice. That's not just in terms of there are trans people who have and continue to need access to abortions, which has to be stated. But it's actually about the meanings of gender that both of these conservative projects rely on. And I think historical context really helps us understand this better. So the weaponization of biology is often one of the main justifications of anti-trans sentiment. People will say, well, biologically, there are indisputably males and females, and your feelings don't constitute legitimate biology, which is already a betrayal of what biology is, because last time I checked, feelings are a nervous system response. Nervous systems are part of our bodies and our biologies. So they that sure division are. is already false, but mm-hmm. I won't go in there. <laughs> That same argument of using biology to justify social policy was used to actually ban women from accessing education and ban women from accessing the right to vote. So in the early 1900s, when you had white upper middle class cis women saying, we want to go to school, we want to vote, the argument that men would use is biologically, you are incapable of rational thought. In fact, Rational thought will distract your hormones away from the necessity of reproducing. And they said your only role in society is to reproduce the race. And let's be very clear here. They were explicitly talking about white people. It was about the reproduction of the white race. And any desire that was outside of the domestic realm was seen as threatening the future of the entire population. So what we see there is an equation that woman equals ability to reproduce equals mother. And in fact, women who defied those social conventions were called hermaphroditic experimenters or third sexers. In fact, in 1913, a series of memes were published that would depict suffragists as mannish, as lesbian, as hairy, as ugly, The idea was, if you vote, you cease to be a woman. If you think for yourself, you cease to be a woman. So if we can learn from a century ago, because these things come in circles, history is not, contrary to popular belief, a a linear trajectory that, that moves towards progress. I think it's actually much more vexed and fraught than that. What we can learn is that behind every claim of what the biological function of, quote, males and females are, is a social judgment of what the proper role of what women and men in society should be. So fast forward a century later, the reason that we're seeing the coinciding of anti-trans legislation and anti-abortion legislation is because of the historic need to say woman equals reproducing agent. 
And so when trans politics complicates that and expands the horizon of what womanhood and femininity and gender are, that's the same expansion of possibility that there was with saying that women can be leaders, women can work, women can leave the house, women can think. It's actually not about biology, it's about politics. So what we need right now in this moment, and Orvishi was very clear about this 30 years ago, is we really need unity and coalition against gender norms. It's not just about fighting for access to safe abortions or fighting for access to trans comprehensive healthcare, of course. But what we actually need is a new imagining of what it means to be a woman, a man, or a person in contemporary world. And that's where the possibility of imagination comes in. We need to actually create a culture that says women don't have to give birth in order to be women. Women don't actually have to be mothers in order to have worth in our society. Women get to choose what they do with their lives. And that practice and ethic of bodily autonomy is the same in trans politics. We get to choose what we do with our own bodies. We get to choose how we adorn our bodies. And that I think that the betrayal there that feels important to name is that while the abortion rights movement has done such a great job of populating this refrain that men should not legislate on women's bodies, which is already a problem because it's not just women's bodies that are being legislated, right? The same cis women who are often supporting that framework are pro-legislating the bodies of trans and intersex people. So there's an inconsistency there, which seems like, in fact, people aren't fighting for freedom. They're fighting for the ability to do what was done to them to someone else. So what we need actually is a coalition around bodily autonomy that says only individuals can determine what they do with their own reproductive health. That's none of your your business or your decision. I think you're entirely right that within the reproductive rights movement, I think we feel it even now, even in the moment that we're sitting in, this kind of like hesitation to even use like quote unquote inclusive language around pregnant people. And if we can't like conceptualize why that is important or why that matters and and why that isn't quote unquote erasure of women, then then I I feel very I feel very worried about our future um, and our ability to stand firm in this commitment to upending the entire system. I think that the idea is some people have in their mind that instead of getting rid of the gender hierarchy and throwing the ladder fully away, they want to replace the gender hierarchy with something that suits them personally. And I really wonder what you make of this kind of overarching conversation that even this re- the reproductive rights movement is having about inclusion and this quote-unquote conflict of, for people who are just we'll we'll assume good intentions, right? For people who are like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to erase women? How do you answer that? Yeah. You know, I answer with compassion always. I totally understand that people feel like if someone else succeeds or thrives or is noticed, it takes away from them. It's a zero-sum thinking that this world has taught us which is that we can't all thrive together and that we have to be in competition. And I understand that that's not individual people's fault. It's to your point before institutions, which have primed people to think that they're in constant antagonism with one another, which is just not correct. And I also deeply empathize with the historic and ongoing brutality of male supremacy and violence against women. But what I want people who feel like gender inclusive language is the culprit to recognize is that it is easier to go for low hanging fruit than it is to actually work together and address the material conditions that are harming us all. Actually, trans and non-binary people are not to blame. The gender binary is to blame. Actually, trans and non-binary people are not to blame. Patriarchy is to blame. And we have so much more in common because all of these issues are actually also trans issues in terms of reproductive care. And then the next thing I would say is that we see this perennial refrain of they're just making up genders and making up language. And I want to remind people that every single word used to describe women, girl, lady, woman, wife, 
actually historical connotations that were used to demean and bemoan women as sluts, as heathens, as wrong, that actually the people who were creating language were patriarchs who were doing so in order to stabilize the status quo. And secondly, in fact, all language is made up. In fact, the word made up was made up, though just like the word woman was made up. So what's happening there to your point around hierarchy is the protest is not about new language. It's about people who have for so long been spoken over, insisting to speak for themselves. And that's where we have to check in ourselves. Am I becoming what I spent my entire life protesting? And I think that's the cultural reckoning we need to be having around trans politics right now. The very same tactics that men have deployed against women for centuries are now being recycled and regurgitated like a perverse case of hot potato onto trans people. And that's not okay. We have to break and interrupt this cycle of violence. And the way that we do that is not actually through a holier-than-thou shaming of saying, you are ignorant, you are ruthless. I actually think the way that we interrupt the cycle of violence is by being anti-violent in the way that we relate to each other which is choosing to be compassionate and merciful. And so my strategy whenever I'm in these sort of conversations is I and go, and indulge people with curiosity and I help them understand that they are operating as if we're in a fishbowl whenever we have the entire ocean. And so then I ask the deeper question, who made you feel like you only belonged in a fishbowl? And when we trace the root of that bruise, it's not me. Right. Yeah, it's it's all displacement, really, when he, it, gets, it gets back to it. And I think, you know, another wrinkle I want to tie in here, uh, recently, the great replacement theory, the idea that non-white immigrants would supersede and replace white Americans and use their newfound majority status for political and social gain, has made headlines. As it was mentioned in the manifesto left by the, the shooter who stormed into a predominantly Black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York, and brutally killed 10 people. Um, I think that this is also part of it, too, that this is a caste system that is also fueled by, it's fueled by racism and patriarchy, and those are inextricably linked. And that that this idea that, that there will be people, you know, to the, your whole point, this zero-sum game here is really threatening us all and, and hurting us all when the reality is that it's not just a, a, a women, trans people, men situation. It's, it's, a, it's a white supremacy situation. And that, that culture is permeating across every issue that we work on at the ACLU. Great replacement theory is the descendant of a theory called race suicide. So in the early 1900s, there was this perennial fear among Protestant white people that immigrants from Eastern Europe, Jewish people, would win in the immigration and then they become a minority. And so, in fact, coinciding with that racial anxiety was the eugenic policing of gender and sexuality. So this is when we began to see predominantly white LGBTQ people be forcibly administered lobotomies, uh, conversion therapy, institutionalization as a way to fix them. The diagnosis they would be given is something called racial atavism, which is a way of saying that these white people had failed to undergo evolution and had primitive ancestry in them. And that's why they were queer and that they needed to be fixed so that they could have children so that they could reproduce the race so that they could make sure that race suicide didn't happen. So that's another of the many illustrations that show how the policing and the maintenance of gender and sex norms has actually always been linked to these larger ideas of racial formation. And it's deeply upsetting to me that the discourse around intersectionality is such that people can look at me and ask, how does your race intersect with your gender? But what we need to start doing now is how does whiteness intersect with your ideas of gender and sexuality. When these people are saying, we can no longer be men and women, what they're actually talking about is white man and white woman. 
Because for thousands of years, Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color have existed outside of the Western gender binary and had different ideas of what it meant to be and look and act like a man or a woman. The ideas and definitions of manhood and womanhood that we have now were forged in the hearth of the eugenics movement in the late 18th and early 19th century. We literally have scientists in the late 1800s who, after the French Revolution, when people were asking for political rights and democracy, women started to be like, okay, that should apply to us too. And you'd have white male doctors say, no, not you. In fact, they would use arguments like the word femme, which is woman in French, is like the word fetus, which means your only role in society is to be a mother. These were considered scientific credentialed arguments in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Now we call it pseudoscience or we call it conspiracy theory, but I think we do that as a way to distance ourselves from the fact that we used to literally measure people's skulls and use that as race. And so I see this actually as a need to learn our histories of science, to learn our histories of eugenics and be like, how does contemporary eugenics work? This is like a well-funded program that has persisted. I mean, after the atrocities against Jewish and Romani people in the Holocaust, Jewish and Roma people in the Holocaust, there was a rebranding of the eugenics movement in the U.S., where instead of Center for Eugenics, it becomes Center for Family Planning. Do you think that they changed any of their tactics? The same people who spent their entire careers prohibiting Black and Indigenous people from being able to give birth moved their focus away to prioritizing reproductive care for white people to ensure the future of the race, right? So these things, when we're saying this is about race, this is not our interpretation. This is not our analysis. This is what actually has been transcribed historically from these thinkers who unapologetically said it themselves. And that's the need to actually learn history, which I think leads to another one of the issues we're facing in our country right now, which is that people aren't actually even able to learn history. I come from the state of Texas, which produces many of the historical textbooks for the entire country, where there was a legitimate debate on banning the word slavery from our curriculum and talking about like internship and other ludicrous alternatives. We have to connect the dots here and say, actually, the way that this fanaticism operates is through disappearing history such that people don't know that another way is possible. And they think that patriarchy is the same thing as reality. But what feminism teaches us is that patriarchy isn't reality. It's not a given that women and trans people have to be subordinated in society. It's a political choice. And people won't know that that's a choice if they don't actually get access to literature and to history that can help them demystify the systems around them. I think also our education system would probably have to become a little bit more sophisticated, but I I see your point. And also it's worth noting that one of your own books was banned from uh, Texas schools. And I, I think I could only imagine how frustrating that must also feel. It's so troublesome. It's so problematic. And, and you're right. I think education is such an important tool in helping us unravel these issues because they are all one and the same. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you have found this sense of freedom, freedom from the binary in in all facets of life. Because I think, you know, people listening to this conversation are, number one, going to be very impressed by how you can connect all of these dots for folks. But also, I think sitting in their kind of hyper-conditioned lives, wonder, how is that possible for me? And if it is a personal reckoning that we all need to be having in order to achieve this kind of collective healing that can transform then our systems, what was the what was the beginning for you? I think one of the most beautiful advancements in modern technology has been our ability to peer into the brain. And now we have video footage of new neural networks being created. Sometimes I just Google it or I like watch on YouTube new neural pathways being created. And this challenges so much of what neuroscience thought about brain development. We used to think that our brains only were plastic, which is another way of saying it developed when we were kids. But now so much research is showing us that our brains can actually continue to change throughout our entire lives. 
that births so much possibility. It's a way of saying you are not your conditioning and that it is actually possible for you to rewire your brain and grow. And that healing is in fact, physiologically possible, not just some hypothetical supposition. It's an embodied practice inscribed into our brain. And so what I did in my life is I prioritized my healing. And what it means to prioritize our healing is to actually reorient our locus of affirmation away from other people towards ourselves. I started to ask myself, who am I outside of what other people want me to be? Do I like myself outside of other people's approval of me? And the more I began to prioritize my joy over other people's shame or my reality over other people's projection, the more I began to return to the childlike wonder that I once had. This is not something new. Healing is a return to what was and what will be again. And the work that I'm doing in the world is healing justice, first and foremost, racial justice, disability justice, trans justice, all those actually begin with healing justice. Because what healing justice actually teaches us, and this is once again neuroscience, our brains stay in pain responses because that's a familiar zone. And actually healing to the brain is threatening because it's unknown. And so in order to heal your brain, you actually have to pause and say, I have an antagonistic relationship to this healing because it's the unknown. And I'm going to plunge into this unknown anyways. And that's what our society is stuck in right now. A broken neural network that fires inequality, that fires greed, that fires competition, and that fires envy, because those are familiar things. Those are talismans and virtues that we know ourselves through. And what I'm asking the world to do right now is to actually stop and notice that another way is possible. They tell us that competition is the only way to live, but I just had a, a nibbling be created into the world and I hear them cry and we heed their cry. And we know that actually in order for each one of us to be alive, someone heeded our cry, which teaches me that collaboration and care are actually the currency of human life, not competition. It's about a practice of notice, being able to notice the everyday miracles, the wonder, the beauty, the potential, the possibility, the powerful world-making that happens. That's what gave me permission to heal is that I read the greats like James Baldwin, who said, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. And inscribed in that note is a sense of the daily triumph of being alive in a world that doesn't want you to be there. I think all the listeners had so much adversity and obstacles in their life. Survival is never an accident. It's always been a creative act. So if you begin to notice the ways in which something in you is striving for something better, that something in you said, you, you deserve to be here, harness that. And then when you give a platform to that, your intuitive voice, your voice that says, I'm worth more than the summation of other people's proclamations. I'm worth more than other people's assessments of my dignity or my character. If you harness that voice, then freedom is there. And freedom is not something that can be conferred. It's not something that can be granted. Freedom is something that has to be lived in you. And it's perverse to me that freedom is in so many ways such an American word. And yet those of us who are actually living it every day, trans and gender non-conforming people who are living free lives are persecuted and punished for it. So in some ways, the protectors of freedom should be our protectors. But this is where Orvishi's work, I think, really comes into my ear. She says, they say that they live a life of values, but what values? Actually, LGBTQ folks are practicing family values. What family values is, I'm going to show up for you when you're sick and you're ill. What family values are, I'm going to love you even when you can't give back to me. What family values are, is you don't deserve to die what family values are is everyone deserves a universal basic income and everyone deserves health care. That's a family value. So the question then for healing the world becomes, what are non-negotiable values? And for me, that's compassion, that's mercy, that's empathy, and that's solidarity. Alok, you just connected so much for me there. When I was digging into the Alok files, per se, in preparation for this conversation, I noticed one thing 
that I actually haven't heard you talk about much. You have a really large social media presence because of the work that you're doing. And naturally, like all people pushing the envelope in some way or another, you were often met with unkind people levying insults at you. But what I've noticed is that you respond to these comments with such a compassion for the people who are trying to hurt you, which I think is extremely common to see online. Um, That's really rare and almost unnatural. One of the things I worry about in doing justice work is ending up stooping to the low of the people that we are up against, you know, the opposition per se. I worry that sometimes we lose the opportunity to move people if we fail to respond with, as Michelle Obama would say, going high, right? I wonder how you came to that conclusion that you would be meeting hatred that would be flung at you with compassion. If people are saying such absurd things to me, imagine how mean they are to themselves. It's just actually a plea for help, isn't it? Like you could do a zillion things today and instead you're choosing to insult a complete stranger online. That shows that your cortisol levels, honey, are extreme (laughs) and you're so stressed out. You're in allostatic load, which is the term for that, that your body is so dysregulated that you don't feel like you're worth peace. You don't feel like you're worth stillness and quiet you're foundationally triggered, which is ironic because then they mock us for introducing the very language to help articulate their neurological condition. So I receive all of that as a plea for help. And the way that I was able to receive that as a plea for help is by focusing on my own healing journey. All the things that they're saying to me, I've said to myself, part of the delight of being non-binary is I get to interrupt all binary thinking, not just between men and women, but also between good and bad that actually I was extremely cruel to myself. As a young person, I genuinely thought that I was disorderly, that I was ugly, that I was fundamentally wrong, and that I should excise myself from earth and the world would be so much better. How did I go from that to walking down the street and a practical seven inch pump? (laughs) That's a story of healing because I forgave myself for being so self-hating because I learned The reason I was self-hating was because that's what I thought I needed to do to protect myself. It actually came from a noble intention, which was, I'm going to take the pain away from when other people hurt you, and I'm going to hurt you first so that no one can hurt you as bad as you've hurt yourself. It was about, I'm going to give you a thick skin so that no one else can land on what they've done to you. It was, I'm going to make you perfect because if you're perfect, then you'll be safe. And those all made sense as a child. Those decisions made sense as a child when no one else was defending me and I didn't have any access to community or friends or literature. But now as an adult, I'm able to be like, that's wrong. That's just fundamentally wrong. And what is the new story I'm going to write? The new story I'm going to write is I don't have to be perfect to be worthy of love. And my safety shouldn't be dependent on basis of what I look like or how I act. It should be non-negotiable, just like my dignity. So when I actually began to focus on my own healing and integrate the ways in which my self-cruelty was misdirected self-compassion, I could see how externally people's cruelty is misdirected self-compassion. The fact that you want me to notice you You could have just swiped by, but you decided to leave me that hate threat. That is a way of saying, please let me participate in your orbit. I don't even know what I need yet. I don't even know who I am yet, but I need to be adjacent to this because it's real and everything in my life feels fake. But in proximity to you, I return to something that feels real. And so I have compassion because I've been there I've been a troll. (laughs) I've been a lurker. I've been someone who thought that this country would be better without large swaths of myself in it. I have been in the trenches with these people. I grew up alongside them. We ate fried ice cream together. And what I'm able to do- Fried ice cream is really good. It's really good. (laughs) What I'm able to do is to be like, I know that you're hurting. 
You pretend that you are so powerful and all-knowing, but how insecure do you have to be to pursue almost 300 pieces of legislation targeting the most vulnerable communities in this country? How fragile and self-hating do you have to be to target trans young people who don't have the support of their families, don't have the support of their religious organizations or their schools, knowing that you have blood on their hand? Oh, wait, you want blood on your hands because that makes you remember that you're alive. You have to remember that everyone is seeking belonging. Everyone's seeking companionship. Everyone's seeking affirmation and acknowledgement. It's just that most people are lost. Yeah, and I think in that way, we have to make our spaces more radically loving in order to in order to fight against this, the spaces that are being created for those people who are looking for community, compassion, and connection that are full of the opposite of radical love. Uh, that really, I think that's really important. My last question for you, Alok, is how are you, you know, all of this is a lot. We're in a heavy time. We're, we're feeling so much loss right now, collective grief over what has what we've been dragged through in the last few years what we're what we're facing in the next who, who knows what our future looks like at this moment i think a lot of people feel incredibly uncertain and and also very scared that we're going in a direction that is going to cons- just continue to exacerbate death and destruction and horror upon so many people. How do you find joy in all of these times? And how do you practice joy? Because I do think that it is also a practice. The first is learning history, because we have this deep need to pretend as if everything is unprecedented, and it's just not true. And there have been so many people before us who felt that same sense of despair And I'm deeply curious about what they did with their despair and how they navigated lives and societies that told them that they shouldn't exist. I take so much hope, especially during Pride, from the legacy of my ancestors, my trans ancestors. Imagine knowing that you'd be arrested going outside and going outside anyways. Imagine being arrested 20 to 40 times and still going outside. Imagine the kinds of everyday brutality and yet the self-knowledge it took to continue to go outside as my transistors did. And so then I tell myself, okay, why did they do it? The only probable reason that they could do it is because they loved me, because they wanted to create a world where no one had to suffer like they did. And they birthed that possibility for me. So I have to do it for the next gen. And I have to really fight to make sure that no one else has to experience this pain. That's what gives me hope. History informs my future. And then second, it's about understanding that grief is not the problem. The problem is that we don't have adequate ceremonies to deal with the grief. Pain is not the problem. The problem is that we don't have spaces to actually be real about our pain. How ironic that the queer movement chose the word proud, not pain, when in fact, so many people are out here pretending that they're proud when they still hate themselves, when they actually still doubt whether they would choose to be queer if offered a choice that actually they're in so much pain and we didn't create a movement that allowed them to be honest about that pain. We just said, okay, you made it. Congrats. Be happy. Be self-loving, which in fact made it really difficult for people to be honest about the ways in which it was still really hard and grueling and invalidating to navigate a society that was structured around your disappearance. So what I'm trying to do is to create ceremonies, locations, spaces, interruptions, breaks, and cracks in the fabric for pain to be honest about how painful it is to be alive, to witness one another in our pain. And that's the unique role of performance in this world. And I think it was so beautiful to get this invitation to speak at the ACLU. But one thing I really want ACLU listeners to understand is that art has been and continues to be part of our movements for social justice. That the law, while it's important, is not exhaustive of what dissent can and should look like. That artists actually are incubating the imaginations of the very world that we're fighting for. It's not just about resisting the rise of these draconian laws. It's about insisting on what kind of world we 
want to live in. And that's what I'm experimenting with, with my art, is a world where we can live without the gender binary, a world where we can live with compassion. It's about taking all of these hypotheticals and concretizing them. That's what art does. I think that's exactly right. And I will say, to your credit, I think even our most lawyerly lawyer at the ACLU would say that culture is informed by art and shifts by art and the law follows. Most often, the law doesn't come first. The culture shift comes first and the culture shift is all happening, as you said, because of the imagination of of artists. So I, I, I actually think that we're all in agreement here with that as well. Alok, any other things that you want to leave our listeners with before we say goodbye? Yes. You know, the situation facing trans and gender non-conforming people in the United States right now is really bleak. And I really want to have an earnest plea that people stop framing this as a minority issue and reframe this as a universal attack on self-determination. Every one of us should be able to determine our own gender. No one else should be able to tell us what we should look like, how we should act, and what we should do with our bodies. So we need you to show up in this moment, not just out of an ethics of allyship, that doesn't feel like enough for me, but out of an insistence and your own dignity, your own capacity to transform, your own love of self. And trans people are blowing the whistle and we're trying to let you know if they're targeting us, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. This is endangering the fabric of our democracy. It's really dangerous that disinformation is being peddled, teaching people lies about trans healthcare, trans athletes, trans life. What other lies do you think they're going to circulate next? We deserve accurate, fact-checked, debunked information, and that's foundational to our democratic process. So don't frame this as just a gender issue, a minority issue, or a trans issue. Frame this as a universal struggle for democracy. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alok, for your time. We, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on trans rights and reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keep fighting. That's aclu.org slash keep fighting. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.